Man, what an honor today we're going to have on the podcast. Hey, good morning, Nick. Jimmy Williams with Live a Life by Design, your Monday morning moments of motivation to help you live a bigger, better, and bolder life. One of the things that intrigued me about our guest today is I've been a fan of rock and roll since the first Elvis record spun when I was just a baby boy, and my parents were playing outside rock and roll stuff from that giant zenith all-in-one tv stereo console you know that one in your living room your parents that took up the entire wall and weighed about two tons i gotta tell you we played the needle off that thing burning up elvis presley records when i was a kid and then on sunday morning you know you think well that's a little different getting ready for church and stuff is just a typical midwest family nope dad spun the old Elvis Presley with the Stamps gospel albums, blared them real early at 7 a.m., you know, so there was no rest in our house. Why am I telling you all this is to give a little background of what we're going to be sharing today with you uh, through our guest on Live a Life by Design. Many of you have heard on our podcast, we're up to 154 episodes. You've heard me say many times, I'm an old guitar player. You know, there's a lot of us out there in the world that just play for enjoyment. Well, I'm going to visit with the gentleman today that has been up close and personal with one of my heroes of the day. I took guitar lessons for just a brief moment. I love to play mainly by ear. Um, and so what I did is I took guitar lessons. My mother would take me over to the guitar teacher and I'd spend an hour with her every week and was thinking I was making some good progress. I was about age 12 and I'd been playing for almost a year, just about a year. And something happened in 1978 that just changed my world forever. And no, it wasn't a catastrophic event. No car accident, didn't lose a loved one, didn't lose a parent or anything of that nature. What happened was in February, on the 10th of February, 1978, something hit my AM FM radio. I didn't have an eight track then. I didn't have cassettes, obviously, back then. And folks, that little CD thing, you know, or Bluetooth, not even thought about. That tells you my age. But something came on and I'm like, I got to wait for the DJ to tell me what this is. This sounded like World War III going off on my radio. And he got through and he said that was the initial cut from the album Van Halen, the self-titled album, album of the band. Didn't know who this Van Halen was. Never heard of Van Halen being in Oklahoma. They're in a California band. We're going to get in some detail of some of that a little bit later. So I'm listening to this and the hair on my arms, folks, I'm not exaggerating. The back of my neck started standing up when the second track was played. So the first track called Running with the Devil opens up with this car horn. It's just really cool sounding car horn. And then the second track, it sounds like, oh my gosh, this guy is killing things on the, on the fretboard. I had no idea he did how to do it. Didn't know how he was getting those sounds out of that. My amp didn't sound anything close to that. My guitar was not nearly as good. And so the song that, uh, that started out running with the devil kept my ear, but eruption blew my eardrum. So I'm going to join you today with my guest, a, a great man, a PhD. I'm going to give you a little background about him. This gentleman was born in the Bronx, New York, not too far from me. I, I sound like one of those Bronx natives, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he grew up in New Jersey. He earned his PhD in American history from Brandeis University and is the author of Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. His writing has appeared in Medium or Q Point, uh, Guitar World, LA Weekly, and Vulture. 
and he has his works been profiled in Spin, Salon, Maxim, Rolling Stone, Los Angeles Magazine, Oklahoma Magazine. Folks, this guy never sleeps. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And now he lives in one of the greatest states in the continent. He lives in Oklahoma and enjoys connecting with readers, uh, does a lot of work on Twitter, and is now going to bring in some information to you, an author of three books. Uh, the first book out was a 2008, The Big Tent, The Traveling Circus of Georgia. I'm sorry, that print's a little small for me. My apologies there. And then the second book that came out was the Van Halen Rising book, which was the first one I read of his outstanding reading historical uh, information on Van Halen. And then most recently, I've had the pleasure of reading Ted Templeman, which we'll get into that. He's the producer of the Van Halen original albums. So, man, welcome to the show, Greg. I can't tell you how honored I am to have you here. Well, after an introduction like that, I mean, I come back every week. That was a that was a true pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Jimmy, and thanks for all your kind words. You're surely welcome. And hey, so let's just cut to the chase here. I've got to ask you, man. You don't sound like most of my friends that live in the Bronx. What what they do to your accent when you were in California? <laughs> well, I lived in uh, in Queens for uh, most of my childhood, and then we moved to New Jersey, and then uh, you know, I lived uh, I've lived in Massachusetts. I lived in Mississippi for a couple of years. I lived in Missouri, and so uh, like I tell people, it's sort of all washed out somehow, and it became uh, sort of a defunct uh, U.S. American accent. But um, yeah, I'm an East Coaster originally. Yeah. I got to tell you a funny story. So when I was on a board, I was on a national board in New York on Sixth um, Avenue, Avenue of America, is where the Fox News building is. We had about three floors of that building for an organization called the AICPA, American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. So one of my first board meetings, you got to you got to understand that a lot of people there in the New York, I call it the tri-state area, they've never left Connecticut, Jersey, or New York. They've never been anywhere else, right? Right. Well, a lady came up to me, honest to goodness, I'm not lying, Greg. This lady comes up to me, a board member, suit, tie, got the cufflinks on, I'm doing my gig, trying to look as professional as possible, right? <laughs> she comes up to me and she says, uh, Mr. Williams, may I ask you a question? I said, certainly. And I said, don't call me Mr. That's my dad. That's my whole take on it. I'm a young guy, you know? <laughs> she says, well, Jimmy, she says, um, I just love the way you talk. And I said, well, I'm speaking English. I'm, is there some other dialect you'd like me to use? She said, no, your, your dialect is fine. It says that your, your sound of your voice, it just sounds so Southern. And she says, how do you talk like that? And I looked at her really funny and I'm like, you know, and she says, well, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what she's getting at. And I thought she was teasing me, Greg. And then she says, aren't you from Oklahoma? Like that. And I said, yes, ma'am. And, and she said, well, now they have Indians out there, don't they? They sure do. And I'm like, <laughs> and I, and I'm actually part of one. I'm part of the member <laughs> part Indian. And I said, yes, ma'am, we do. We just got the internet and I believe running water's on its way. And I just walked off laughing. It was so funny. So talk a little bit about me. How, how in the world did you get from the Bronx to Queens, to Jersey, to Mississippi? What was going on in the world for Greg to have that kind of a transportation in life? Yeah. I, um, my parents, uh, lived, uh, lived in Queens. My mom grew up in, uh, in Queens. And, uh, so we spent about 10 years of my life there. Then my family moved to Northern New Jersey. So, uh, about an hour from New York city, if you imagine, uh, kind of North and West, a very, very, uh, Northwestern corner of New Jersey is where I grew up. And uh, I went to Rutgers University in New Jersey, got my uh, bachelor's there in history. And, uh, you know, I really was a, had been a history buff since I was a little kid and uh, kind of was left at the end of college with a history major. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I decided that I was going to 
see about maybe being a teacher or something. And so I went off and did my master's degree at University of Mississippi in Oxford. And so you can imagine coming from New Jersey. Um, I was very interested in Southern history, but you can imagine I'd never been to Mississippi before. But I, you know, I did the whole um, gamut of school tours. I saw Alabama. I saw the University of South Carolina. I saw uh, Vanderbilt. And so it was really a, a great experience for me that summer when I was looking at schools. But I ended up going to Ole Miss and doing my uh, two years there. And then after I finished my master's there, I decided I wanted to keep going with my education. And I um, went to Brandeis University, which is in Boston. And I, I spent um, some years there and I finished and got a PhD in American history. So I started, studied American uh, culture, American society. So that was really my, my focus. And as you mentioned, I did a book on uh, traveling circuses and that was actually my dissertation. So I was interested in kind of how popular culture affects people. And when big entertainments appear in a town, how that uh, might make the local population a little bit uh, uneasy or excited. And there was all these different uh, pieces of that that I worked on for that book. And then I um, got my first job, my first history teaching job at a university at uh, Drury University in Springfield, Missouri. And I ended up teaching there for about a decade plus um, until uh, my family and I relocated to Tulsa. But um, yeah, so that was uh, my journey from uh, a kid growing up in uh, New York, New Jersey, and you know, kept just kept like tell people I just stayed in school longer than you and ended up, you know, getting the PhD and then teaching, you know, teaching. I just took more credits than you yeah. and uh, ended up getting uh, the teaching uh, professorship and, and, uh, did that for a while, but then, uh, we re relocated here and I've, I've left, uh, the college teaching, but, uh, I am, uh, yeah, I'm here in Tulsa loving it. Oh, that is just awesome, man. What a story. I, I gotta be honest with you though. Did you leave when you left the, the Northeast and you came South, you said you went through Vanderbilt that's over in Tennessee and yep. you came through Tennessee and you went down to Mississippi. Did you think that maybe you were going to fall off the edge of the earth? Cause a lot of those folks in the Northeast think we don't really exist over here. <laughs> You know, um, I, I, you know, I had gotten interested in Southern history as a undergrad. I had read some books, I had a great mentor I can talk about who, um, who suggested some books for me. And I got really interested in the civil war, but more, you know, more about just how the, um, how Southern culture developed distinctly in some ways from the rest of the country. And, um, you know, I loved it. It was, I got there and, um, you know, I got to eat, you know, uh, grits and I got to eat uh, barbecue and basically things that, you know, you weren't, you know, were accessible to me in New Jersey. And I got to meet people obviously that I never would have met before. Um, and just see a whole different landscape and a whole different, um, worldview, like, you know, from a lot of people. And so, uh, you know, Oxford, Mississippi, if folks haven't been, it's a great, great place to visit. I mean, Old Miss is there obviously, but the town itself is really, really, really just, um, an incredibly historic place. And it really, you feel sort of like you stepped into a different, a different realm in some sort of ways coming from the Northeast. But, um, you know, I took to it, you know, I really enjoyed the, the people and the, and the, um, the, the music and the, just the food and the, the, the art. I loved it all. And it was a wonderful experience for me. I got to tell you, friend, that's another reason I wanted you on the podcast is I am a history nut. I'm a, uh, unlike you, you're, you're formally trained and all that good stuff. I am very informally trained, but I take, they're called the great courses. I've probably taken mm. 150 hours of courses on there that they offer by various uh, PhDs across the world. And I have two or three of them on the civil war. I'm just the same as you. I'm a civil war nut. That period of time, 1861 to 1865 to me, just fascinates me on how our country right now could have a North and South that we do a, a Dakotas, for example, or Carolinas, we could have a North, you know, North United States and a, a Confederacy, if you will. Uh, so that's interesting. So, Hey, tell me, you mentioned mentor. I'm, I'm a big believer in mentors. I've got uh, two or three myself. 
Who's your mentor? And tell me why. So my mentor is a a gentleman by the name of uh, Jim Livingston. He's a professor at Rutgers. He's just about to retire this year. And, uh, you know, I, uh, when I got to Rutgers, I was, uh, as I said, kind of uh, looking for, uh, you know, the final direction, what I want to do with my career really wasn't sure. And I took a class with him on American history uh, my junior year. And, uh, you know, he really took a, took an interest in me. And I got to say that, you know, for all of the talk today that people like, you know, Zoom teaching and remote teaching, all the stuff that there's a sort of move towards this, you know, just being in the same room and talking to him. And I used to actually, what I used to do is, you know, class would be over and I'd have questions for him about grad school or about what the books are reading. And I would, he would walk across campus and I would just sort of tag along with him. And he never, you know, he, he never said anything but a kind word and was like, yeah, come on. And we just would walk and we would take that 10 minute talk. And he really was the one who kind of sold me on going to grad school. I mean, he didn't sort of push me on it, but he was like, oh, you're interested in history. Why don't you go get a master's in history and go on and do some more studies. And he really supported me and um, helped me with my applications. And uh, I really owe him um, in, in a lot of ways, this whole, you know, where I am today, because if, you know, if he hadn't really taken the interest, I'm not sure I would have um, kept after it the way I did and sort of really would willing to sort of think about doing something like that. Um, my father had was a professor. He's passed on now, but he was a college professor. So I had that you know, idea, but sort of for me, I wasn't sure if that was the right thing for me to do. And um, I think having you know, having somebody outside your own family kind of, you know, suggesting and saying, yeah, you can, you can do it. Come on, let's, you know, I'll help you. And, you know, that was so Jim Livingston. Yeah, I owe him a lot. That, you know, that's the key to me. Uh, those mentors play such a powerful role. Like you said, you may or may not have had the fortitude to want to stick it out. I mean, getting a PhD is tough, folks. I'm going to be honest with you. The dissertation committee by itself is tough, but the classroom work you have to do prior to that is not a cakewalk. A lot of analytical work, a lot of creative work has to be done. Like you said, you wrote a book out of your thesis. So talk to me a little bit about how you took that transition saying, okay, America's slice of entertainment came first from circuses. If you remember, they traveled back by wagons, right? I mean, they came through towns and wagons and just made the circuit. To me, that was kind of the precursor, uh, to be very honest with you, Greg, about rock and roll concerts coming to town, you know? You are, uh, you and I think alike. That's uh, kind of the way I ended up with the Van Halen book in some sort of way. It wasn't uh, immediately apparent to me when I started thinking about doing the book on Van Halen. But let me tell you, yeah, um, you know, I was really, really interested in trying to think about how the South was affected by national popular culture and so you know we kind of all have an idea of what southern culture is you know it's you know it's um, blues or it's country music uh in terms of music or certain types of food uh, certain types of art but uh i i got this idea when i was working for a looking for a subject matter to write my dissertation on about this idea of circuses and it turned out that a lot of the circuses in the late 19th century had come out of the midwest a lot of them a lot of big um big shows so the ringling brothers uh, Barnum and Bailey is the one that people know best. And, um, you know, these shows would come down from Wisconsin or Ohio, and they would basically, uh, and as you mentioned, initially they traveled by wagon, but after the Civil War, when the railroad lines were laid. And so uh, it, it was really a fun thing to study because what would happen is that in these communities, um, I said in the state of Georgia, but it happened all over the South, is that evangelicals particularly would get, you know, quite um, uh, irked. By this idea of a circus coming to town because it, it was it was um, inspiring sort of a, a worldly uh, worldview right to look away from uh, godliness and and uh, there was also the sense that the circus men were corrupt and that there were things that go on in the circus that weren't appropriate for um, Christians but on what was really interesting too was like I learned a lot about 
how um, marketing took place. And I think one thing that's worth remarking about here is that um, the circus men were, you know, they were um, very, very savvy and very, very um, aware of the prejudices against them and how to connect with people and reach across that. So anyone who's trying to sell a product or something, sometimes you realize there's a gap you have to bridge to convince someone to uh, engage with your product. And they, they really realized that for a lot of evangelicals, the attraction to coming to the circus was the menagerie, the animals, right? right. So, and so they actually overtly began to market that in the South about come see God's animal creation at the circus. And they actually would set up separate tents. So these shows were huge. There was a big, big uh, three ring circus under a giant canvas, big top, but there were also was a menagerie tent. And so they would actually say, you can buy a ticket. You don't have to go to see the show. You don't want to have to see the girls in the tights or the, the whatever that you might find to be not appropriate for your religious um, outlook, but go in the tent with the animals. And they made it into this sort of educational, like a zoo, basically a traveling zoo. And they, they, but you know, they would talk about Noah on the marketing, you know, Noah brought the sure. animals two by two into the ark and come see Noah's, you know, Noah's, you know, uh, yeah. animals basically. Yeah. And they were, you know, that was in, um, so in terms of the economic aspects, the cultural aspects, but then as you mentioned with rock and roll, there definitely was a similar type of thing. I mean, for, for folks who, uh, who haven't been to Tulsa, there's a place in Tulsa called Kane's Ballroom. And, uh, you know, when the Sex Pistols came to Kane's Ballroom in 1978, um, you know, people came out and protested. And that's, you know, not, you know, localized to Tulsa. That happens all over the country. So, you know, for uh, the late 20th century, particularly where there'd be you know, uh, outrage about certain acts or groups, but this was, you know, this was a similar type of thing where people would put up a revival tent, you know, <laughs> try to get oh. people to come pray, pray at the revival yeah. tent. Don't go across the street to the circus tent. Literally, Let me tell you, man, it was a, fr- it was a fringe, wasn't it? I mean, it was, a, it was out there pushing the limits of what they thought was decency back in the day. You know, th- to me, those circus uh, promoters were the precursor to what we see as concert promoters. These guys will go out six months ahead, a year ahead and go, Hey, yes. guess who I've got coming to town? Yes. You know, guarantee the artist a certain cut and then they got to go hustle yeah. and get tickets. Right. Uh, you know, let me say, you mentioned the word canes. I'm going to tell you folks, if you ever get an opportunity on the North side of Tulsa, downtown Tulsa, uh, on the North side, it's now developed. It's very nice, great restaurants and all that. But back in the day in the seventies, man, that was the hangout. Bob Wills, the Texas playboys played at canes an awful lot. You know, Johnny Wills had to play there. Uh, these guys came from everywhere. Uh, th- didn't Stevie Ravon play there once in his early in his career? Somebody uh, had rumored that, but I can't prove that. You know, I'm not sure about that. I know he had played over at the Boston Market. You there know, you go. Uh, okay. The Boston Market. So 1982, Stevie Ray Vaughan played, you know, walking distance to where I live, where you live, um, before he sort of hit it big with uh, Texas Flood and all that stuff. But, yeah, you could have seen him in, like, basically a, like a small bar Gosh. here in Tulsa. I don't have a lot of regrets, Greg, and I tell people, don't live life with regrets. I try to get everything in I can, but I did never – I never got to see him live. That's one of my regrets. I saw his brother, Jimmy, so I saw mm-hmm. him over, and there's a great venue, small, intimate venue called Tower Theater over in Oklahoma City that's just a refurbished theater, an old like a video theater, and uh, they have some great acts. I encourage everyone uh, listening to go to that. So so let me ask you, let's, let's transition a little bit. So you've authored some books. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you enjoy writing. Um, but tell me, how did you get involved in that transition of molding your idea of history, your love of history and writing to, to going to Van Halen and writing a book about the band's history? Talk to us about that. Sure. Um, well, you know, I was, uh, I was a professor and I had just gotten tenure actually. And, uh, I, it was sort of a, you know, it's a long climb up the mountain, as you mentioned. So you go to grad school, you get the, you do a master's degree and then you do the, the PhD, you do your courses, you do your dissertation, you get the job, you go on the job market, then you got to 
try to get tenure. And you know, I, I had uh, put the six or seven years into that and I had put together a tenure portfolio and I got tenure. So I had a little bit of breathing room after that. And uh, I was going to write a small little article on Van Halen. Now, again, you know, I, I do all sorts of, I've done all sorts of academic writing and writing journal articles and published the, the book. Um, but this was just meant to be something for just to uh, have fun, you know, and I, I was actually going to write an article for um, a website that's called Van Halen News Desk. And it's uh, probably the place that most Van Halen fans will go to find information about the band. And there's concert reviews and they have historical articles sometimes. And I was going to write one just for fun. And uh, I was just poking around and I started talking to a couple of people on Facebook who were from Pasadena, where the Van Halen band originated. And uh, these were kind of old timers, older than me. And, and I ended up getting to talk to a couple of people who had grown up uh, in the same era as the Van Halen's and knew them and knew the band members. And they started telling me about these parties and about um, Van Halen before they were famous playing on blacktops in parks when they were very, they were teenagers basically. And then, you know, playing at little nightclubs. And then, uh, so when people's parents would go out of town, uh, these these uh, entrepreneurial young people in the early seventies would print, print flyers, and it would basically say, you know, how you know, you know, two dollars Van Halen and uh, all the beer you can drink, and uh, <laughs> go, go go figure. That was a very very successful uh, way to uh, hey, to get Dave, people to come to your the house. Lead, the lead singer, one of the founding members, Dave Lee Ross, an outstanding marketer. I don't know who's yeah. behind him, man, but he knows how to get people there. And so you know, it just. You know, it ended up the whole idea of writing a book about Van Halen was never something if you had asked me in 2010 or when I really started like 2010, 2011, I started just it's just started building momentum on this thing. And it was never something where I had this master plan to write a book. It just it was one of these things where I felt impassioned about the subject. And I was particularly interested as a historian about how bands form and how um, something that seems like it comes out of nowhere. Where does it come from? And so, um, you know, a lot of times we see this with superstars or they'll sort of, you know, appear um, on your phone or on your television or something. And there's a, usually there's a backstory there. And, and it turned out that Van Halen's backstory was a little, probably a little longer than some bands. They had, they had those guys that really slogged it out for a lot of years playing biker bars and just all over Los Angeles is huge. And they had just would play 30, 40 minutes away from Pasadena and just drive all over the city. Um, and it really was, a, I thought, a great um, story, not, again, not only just about um, the band forming, but also I really got in interested in the brothers as immigrants. So for those people who don't know, the Van Halen family came from Holland, Netherlands in 1962, four members of the family and two, two brothers who ended up forming Van Halen. And they came from a musical family. And I was really interested in that, too, that they, you know, that the the, uh, the parents really sacrificed to give these kids a good life and a better life leaving Europe to come to America. And these, you know, they weren't wealthy. They weren't privileged. They, you know, they had to, like, basically, you know, payment plans on their instruments, but they just practiced and practiced and worked at it. You know, it's that 10,000 hour rule, whatever it is. And you right. know, um, they just they really, really put in the effort to get good and to stick with it. And I think that's the other thing I always sort of reflect on is that there's this um, feeling that a lot of us have when you're pursuing something like this. You know, I was trying to write this book about Van Halen and here I am a history professor and that's not exactly, doesn't really, you know, as you mentioned, not very congruent with like publishing a book about a rock band. I mean, you know, you know it's not very, it's not very sensible in some ways. And there's this sense like when you quit on something like, you know, there's a sort of a belief I can do this, but there's also this sort of sense that, you know, you should know like, okay, this is, you're basically, you're uh, throwing good money after bad, or it's, you know, it's, it's, you're, you know, it's some cost. You just you know, move on, whatever the, how we want to say it. And, you know, I just, um, I saw that in the Van Halen band, actually, those guys never gave up and always thought they had the, 
they had something special that people were eventually going to appreciate and sort of, you know, for me, it was just, you know, I just kept, kept at this thing. And eventually I got to the point where I said, you know what, it's, I'm too far into this thing and I will not be able to live with myself if I don't finish the book. That is awesome. So I guess uh, maybe on your syllabus you have is required reading Van Halen Rising, the success story <laughs> of an immigrant family in the world of promise. Anyway, subtitled- I never assigned it to my students. That's so funny. Yeah, I never did. I never Come did. Come on. You're supposed to, Greg. This is Don't take this wrong. Take a David Lee Roth message, right? Self-promotion is the best kind. I'm just teasing, exactly. brother. Uh, one of the things, too, I want to visit with you about is, is is you've written you've written this book of Ted Templeman, and Ted Templeman is one of the greatest ears. I'm going to say it that way. One of the greatest ears and minds of rock and roll, from gosh, Doobie Brothers, man, Michael McDonald, the Van Halen. This guy's got his thumbprint on so many great bands. That I'm 57 next next few days here in just a few days, and I've listened to these groups growing up as a kid in Midwestern United States, man, here in small town America, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And this guy, this book you've written is outstanding. Now, I know this is Ted's book, but you did all the work on this book, right? Uh, I did. I did the typing a little bit more, but yeah, Ted told the stories. I mean, Ted, yeah. we talked, Ted and I talked. So yeah, I'll talk about Ted Templeman. You know, Ted Templeman um, was a gentleman who I met through doing the Van Halen book. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to interview him for my Van Halen book. And as you mentioned, Ted has won Grammy Awards and was, yeah. um, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s was one of the most in demand and, and best known producers, record producers, when there was really a record industry where you, know, you would have these big record companies and big budgets to do these albums. And, uh, you know, I got to know him and I, you know, I really was interested in um, Ted's story as well after we started to talk about it. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Ted. Ted grew up in Santa Cruz, California. He was actually named after his uncle who was on a ship called the USS Houston for World War II buffs. The USS Houston was sunk in the Pacific in early 1942 and there was basically no contact with the navy when the ship went down and for the longest time ted's family didn't know if his uncle um had been killed captured was was you know uh, lost on an island or whatever and um you know that was sort of you know when ted started telling me these stories about growing up in santa cruz during world war ii and um his uncle comes back from a pow camp and there's sort of that that whole um thing where ted has this this relationship with his uncle and I really encouraged like a mentor for him as well who had been through this horrific experience of being a prisoner of the Japanese and then Ted as a musician ends up forming a little pop group and they ended up getting signed to Warner Brothers Records and Warner Brothers is the, is the company that Ted will work for for decades but um, they were called Harper's Bazaar and uh, you know Ted's telling me these stories and you know the Harper's Bazaar band um, was a, kind of like a the association uh, light light like Sonny and Cher kind of a light soft pop sound and uh, they did really, really well. They were on the, you know, the uh, Mike Douglas show. They were on with Bob Hope. They did skits with George Burns. They did a skit with um, Muhammad Ali. I mean, they were on television quite, quite a bit. And so Ted had this whole chapter of his life as a pop star before he became a uh, a producer. And I, I, you know, that was for me that was a real intriguing thing. Is it's easy to put people into a box and be like, oh, well, this guy's a record producer. What, you know, okay, that's great. He can talk about albums. But when I talked to him about his whole life journey his childhood and about this transition from being a guy who was on television all the time your band kind of gets played out and suddenly you're kind of like oh your old hat in terms of your as a performer and ted had to reinvent himself and how that he had to basically you know start at the very bottom of warner brothers you know very very bottom he was started as a you know so this is a guy who ended up selling millions probably close to 100 million records as a producer he started out with the first job he got at warner brothers was was called was a tape listener which is basically like entry level like mailrooms everything 
And it's like, here's, you know, we'll pay you $40 a week or whatever it was. Here's a box of tapes that people have sent in, listen to it and see what you think. And he ended up hearing a tape um, sent down from uh, San, San Jose by a band called the Juby Brothers. Ted heard that. And again, Ted had been a musician, you know, obviously, and Ted had been um, involved in making records before. So Ted you know, had a, a awareness of what um, a hit might sound like. And he heard the Juby Brothers early songs on a demo tape. And he, he told us, you know, basically told his bosses, I think there's something here. And they ended up signing the Doobie Brothers. And that was what kind of launched Ted's career um, through Doobie Brothers that went on to, of course, Michael McDonald. And then Ted would sign uh, Van Halen and he worked with Carly Simon, Little Feet, Bette Midler. I mean, there's a whole host of things. So Ted had a, you know, a, a great inspirational story too of sort of like, you know, saying like, I, you know, to me, like he said, I thought I was going to quit at one point and go work at a bookstore. Because I was like, this is, I'm serious. He said, you know, he was, um, he was, a his, he was a history major and said like, you know what? It's not going to happen for me. I did my thing in music. That's great. But I'm just going to go. He has family. And he's like, I'm just going to go work at the bookstore. But he stuck with it. And uh, you know, lo and behold, you heard that that tape by the Doobie Brothers and was able to get those guys auditioned. And the rest is history. So he was the precursor to the what came out of uh, the 70s, I guess, and maybe 80s of the A&R man. You know, you got to yeah. listen. Yes. All he's trying to do is seek yes. out talent, you know, seek yeah. out sounds. Right. Who's unique? Right. Let, let's talk a little bit about so his first album. Uh, recorded with Van Halen was the self-titled album, Van Halen. Correct. And some of the stuff I noticed, even back then, so I'm a young guy, keep in mind, I was almost 13, Greg. And so I listened with headphones on, so I'm trying to figure out what is this guy doing on the guitar? You know, I, I right. had a pretty good ear to pick up stuff, but he's doing some stuff that's just way out of whack. First of all, I said, he sounds flat like his, well, then I find out as I later get older and study it, well, they tune down a half step, use a lot of open chords right. for Dave to hit those notes, right? right. And, uh, you know, so at the end of the day, I wanted to let you know, I'm listening and all of a sudden in those songs, he's Ted's moving it from the right to left ear of Ed's guitar will be on one side, rhythm section, you know, it'll be Alan and Michael will be on one side, vocals will be coming through the midstream. And I'm like, man, that's cool. Who would have thought of that? Uh, he's a guy who was so smart. He was innovative, in my opinion. So so tell me a little bit about what's what about Ted gave you the most uh intrigue or what what was one story you can share wow. with our listeners about hey this this really uh, epitomizes ted well i don't know if this one epitomizes ted but this is probably the most remarkable story he told me he told me a lot of amazing stories um so in 1969 um ted's band had played a gig in los angeles and they were going to fly back they were going to fly to san francisco and then drive to santa cruz so it was this was sort of the very tail end of his career as a pop star the band is really kind of winding down and so it wasn't like they were on a big tour. They just had some weekend dates they would play. And they got on a plane in uh, Los Angeles. And when the plane got up in the air, a gentleman in an army jacket in the back of the plane stood up and pulled a rifle out of a, a fishing case, like a fishing pole case, and said, I'm hijacking the plane. Basically, I have a grenade and I want to fly the plane. I want to fly the plane to New York. And so... Ted, you know, these guys are just like a red eye and they're like barely awake and they look up at this guy's kid, you know, he's got the, he's got this rifle and it was horrifying for those guys. And uh, so um, Ted said that the, the pilot, you know, eventually they got, the, the guy went to the cockpit, cockpit with the uh, flight attendant, with a woman flight attendant, walked her all the way to the front of the plane with the gun in her back. And uh, the guy went in the cockpit and, you know, Ted said they heard the plane, the engine of the plane change, like kind of powering down. And Ted was like, this is it, man. We're, you know, he's killed the, he thought maybe he's killed the pilot or whatever. We didn't know what had happened. And the, the pilot said, well, drinks are on the house. He wants us to, you know, the, our, our friend here or whatever. He said, you know, Mr. Whatever wants to fly us to fly to, I don't remember, New York City, I think. But we don't have enough fuel. 
So I'm going to try to convince him that we don't, shouldn't do that. But here we go. Drinks around the house. And Ted said, you know, this was, this was a real, a real like life changing wow. thing for Ted Templeman. Um, and uh, l- luckily, uh, you know, nobody ended up getting killed on this whole, this whole hijacking. No one got killed and the plane um, ended up landing in Denver to get fuel. And they let the, the gentleman left the passengers off. I think he kept few of the crew on the plane, the pilot, the co-pilot, maybe the uh, navigator, but, and left, uh, you know, one of the, one of the flight attendants. Wow. Uh, but um, yeah, when Ted told me that story, man, I faced her like white, I'm sure he was man. telling the story. And so that, you know, this was the era of hijackings. And, oh, sure, uh, sure. But Ted, Ted said that um, this was the, you know, this was the, the thing that sort of like uh, was his post-traumatic, you know, a lot of guys from Vietnam and stuff like that. Ted did had a medical right. thing. He didn't go to Vietnam, but he said like, this was a thing that he's lived with the rest of his life was that sort of horror of that experience. Because you, he said when the plane turned and the engine powered down, the pilot was basically getting ready to re to basically change course. But Ted thought like, this is it. Like the guy is like, wow. whatever the pilot's dead and the plane is going to go nose down into the ground. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that was just, you know, that was just one of the the, the stories. Ted met Frank, Frank Sinatra is another great story. I mean, he got to tell me that nice. he got to meet Frank Sinatra, watch t- Frank Sinatra sing, saw Elvis sing in the studio. You mentioned that he saw Elvis yep. um, sing in Hollywood in the studio and, and got to talk to him and meet Elvis. And so that was before Ted was a, a, a big producer. This was sort of at that um, end of his pop career to the beginning of that. But um, real quick story about the Sinatra story, which was that, Ted was standing in the lobby of a studio in Hollywood, one of the big studios called Western Recorders. And uh, he was, he was, had been singing for his album and then a car pulled up and a gentleman came in and it was Frank Sinatra. So this is about 1966, 67. So Ted was just, Ted had, wasn't even, hadn't even made a record yet. It was his first recording as a recording. He was like 23 years old. And so Ted said he was just like staring at Frank Sinatra. And so like, Frank Sinatra where, like lights a cigarette whatever he's standing there and he's like wearing a suit and it's you know has his hat in his hand he's like hey kid hey kid how how you like my shoes I just bought them <laughs> <laughs> and Ted said they look great Mr. Mr. Sinatra they look great he goes thanks kid you know like that like that was his like you know what he said it wow. was like amazing like to be like you know they were the only two in this basically his driver was parking the car or whatever and like you know he was like gonna come in right after him or whatever like you know and the guy then the, the driver came in and they walked in or together but like he like they had two minutes alone with sinatra and he's like it was like that is another awesome story man right sinatra like probably saw the guy what they're saying like just try to like you know make him relax hey kid what do you think about my shoes you know so you bring bring up yeah you bring up something for ted you know you just don't know where you're gonna be when you run across people man yeah things happen and uh, that story i mean i imagine back then keep in mind that was at the top probably of frank's career i mean he's at the height of it he's got vegas under his thumb the rat pack's going big He's doing movies. I mean, he's right. He's a superstar right. and he meets him <laughs> and I got yeah, new shoes, he, kid. Oh, wow. And this is, so this is the, uh, this is the, that's life recording sessions. And Ted actually got to watch. So oh, because wow. Ted was Ted, like basically followed down the hallway and went up to one of the engineers and said, Hey, can I watch? And the kid, the guy was like, sit in the back, don't talk, you know, don't say anything, just sit in the back corner. And basically Ted got to sit in the control room and he got to watch Sinatra sing. It, the orchestra, Man. you know, one take, yes. the whole nine yards where the back in the day where there was no computer cut and pasting. It was like Frank's in the middle of the room. The orchestra's all around him in the big studio room. And it's like one, two, three, four. You know, that's like, that yeah, was the way yeah, it was done. Back, back then, there was no overdubs. I mean, man, all they did is they did eight track or they did uh, back then that 24, uh, that thinner. I'm trying to think of what it is, but they did that big, big magnetic tape and tried to get it all on there. That was the only way they could yep. do it was cut physically cut. Yep. It's crazy times. Well, well, let me ask you this, friend. So, um, 
if if you had any other career in the world besides a, a PhD in American history, besides being an author, what would that job be for Greg Renoff? Well, uh, it's, it all comes full circle. There's a couple of things uh, I, I would say probably. I, you know, I really loved playing guitar. Like you and I could talk about that all day. I was a, as a teenager, but I was one of these um, unfortunate people who really, you know, my musical talent, it was just sort of, I just ran up against the wall. I practiced and practiced and I kind of became like the best intermediate player in the world, you know? And I just sort of like, could never, you know, I could never play like, like the guy, you know, the guys I could, you know, could, could do a little bit of blue stuff and kind of, you know, yep. uh, fake it a little bit, but um, you know, probably I wish I'd been like sort of blessed with that musical gift to be able to stand up there and and uh solo that probably would have been the uh you know what i would have uh wanted to do i you know hence my obsession with music that's really sort of where it went i became a historian of music or rock music and um because i yeah i just i loved it you know i played a couple bands in high school we just kind of messed around but i was never I never good enough to really and i knew that i was never good enough to kind of take it beyond that but um i'm always just amazed at anybody who can you know, sit down at a piano and play a, a song by ear or just can pick up an instrument and just do things that sort of make your, you know, like you said, the hair stand up on your neck, whether it's a saxophone or guitar or drums, whatever it is. It's just, I'm always in awe of those people who could do that. Remember all the, <laughs> remember all the songs. Right. It's like, I can't well, I'm going to mention something to you now. You can't judge on this because Live Life by Design, we have no judgment here, brother. Everybody digs their own thing, does their own thing, whatever. But here it goes. I am a big, big fan of artistry. So I put in... I put Ed in that artist column. I'd put Dave, and I'm just talking here. It's just Jimmy. I'd put Dave in the entertainment column. I don't, I don't know that his skills rise to what I'm going to call as an artist, but he is a great singer, great songwriter, and he plays good guitar. People don't realize that maybe, but he does. Plays some harp, does a little harmonica. Mm -hmm. but, but what I really like about Dave is he's a showman, right? But Ed, nothing happened in Van Halen that Ed didn't plant the seed for the riff, the, the tune, the timing. You know, he and Al were really the backbone of the songs that came out of that band. And so here's my thing. I don't want you to judge me on here. It goes. I'm a big, big fan. I probably have every recording. This guy has ever made Kenny G. You cannot tell me this guy, his talent on the sax is just to me incredible. So I go, I'm John Coltrane's a big, I'm a big fan of John Coltrane's early stuff. If you listen to the phrasing of some of the best guitarists in the world, especially jazz guitarists, uh, even blues guitarists, those guys emulate the phrasing of some of those great sax players, exactly. man. Yeah. 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 I think, I think, uh, I have a, I have a, I have a friend here who's a you know, much younger than me, a guitar player who is, uh, who was a very a big Van Halen guy. And is a, like, he loves Kenny G. His mom loved Kenny G. And so he looks to a lot growing up, but you're right. I mean, I think I, I remember, Actually, um, for those folks who know Eric Clapton, the guitarist with Cream, and then, of course, the, all the great solo hits he had that he talked about um, saxophone players being an inspiration to him for his soloing. Sometimes he would listen to sax players and that would be something to help help feed his his um, uh, creativity to hear something different. But, yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. The um, you know, there's a lot of uh, computerized music, obviously, that's being done more and more today. You know, it's something but there is something to be said for someone who would just pick up an instrument and I don't care what it is, a trumpet or, you know, a uh, saxophone or a flute or a guitar or a bass and just be able to play um, and just be able to have that interaction with the instrument and be able to enjoy that just for in that moment, that performance, which is special. You're going to laugh. I've listened to buddy guy, John Lee hooker. I'm an old blue. I love blue stuff. Sure. Uh, anyone ever hears about me saying it, I, I love to go down and listen to blues on bill street, uh, Memphis. We like to go down and do mm -hmm. that stuff. But my point I'm making about this, I was listening to an album by John Lee hooker. I mean, and keep in mind this old guy, he was old when I was a mm -hmm. kid, I, you know, 
that guy could play four notes or maybe three notes of some, uh, you know, of something and, and just sounded so sweet, man. It's just mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. fingers and the tone of that day. Keep in mind, he didn't have all the effects. Uh, it was great stuff. So, so let me ask you this, uh, a couple more questions real quick. What's your daily routine look like for Greg runoff? I mean, man, you write books, you're, you do a lot of history study. You got a family. What's a day look like for you? Well, first step is to get the kids up and out to school. And when they have school, <laughs> we haven't had a lot of school in case people have noticed it. You know, we've had a lot of homeschool. So there's been a lot of, there were a lot of homeschooling over the last 18 months. Um, but you know what I, I, I typically try to do is, um, you know, is to when I can just get to the computer as soon as I can after eight thirty or nine o'clock and, and just, uh, start, um, working. If I'm going to start writing something, working on, um, the research for what I'm going to write next. I mean, you know, obviously different types of writing requires different types of, uh, of work for, for me, you know, um, the, the amount of time I put into the research is probably twice or three times what I would put into typing a chapter up, you know, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, people would say, how do you put the books together? You know, and, uh, it, it, to really be able to write the way I want to write, which is to really try to have a very, um, rich and dense descriptions and accounts and, and facts of what, I'm trying to write about it takes uh, a lot of digging and a lot of thinking about how, how things line up. Um, if you're writing about a historical event, I mean, I try to work on building out my timeline, but then, you know, it's just, it's uh, trying to get up and take a walk. If you, if you sit and you work for a while to get up and because I've really have fallen into that trap where you just sort of sit locked in with the computer and you sort of realize after about 30 minutes of that, when you go over time, you're like, I'm just spinning my wheels, you know? And so that's for me, um, those are the things I really, really, uh, tried to do and then find the, the best times to work too. I, I, uh, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have been, I'm a night, you know, a night owl. I used to stay up and, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that doesn't really work for my lifestyle. <laughs> because <laughs> because uh, unfortunately the, uh, the, the younger members of my household don't exactly agree with that. So that's, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to just decide to sleep in, unfortunately for, uh, for dad. So, uh, that's yeah, that's my basic yeah ap- approach. But uh, yeah, try to keep after it and keep work done. So so you're always writing, always working. Tell me what the next book's about. Not maybe the title if you don't have one, but what's the next book about? You know, I'm not really prepared to announce the next okay. book, but I will tell you that um, you know the having done the the, the two books um, and the three books, but the two particularly about rock music, it's been really. Um, inspiring how how much people have enjoyed them and so you know what i'm trying to think about uh, trying to do is maybe um take a take a little bit of a left turn with what i'm going to do next so you know when the time comes i'm a historian right i'm going to write something about history and i'm definitely most interested in in uh 20th century music um you know i'm not sure i do another band bio per se but i i have some ideas about different events and different things that have happened around music and i'm i'm uh and once I can kind of get this rolling a little bit more, as I said, things kind of got put on pause because of our, our pandemic lifestyle. And uh, but, you know, get back after it and get something out for people. I really am uh, appreciative that people enjoy the book so much. Well, let me ask you a quick question. Then what's been the most fulfilling event, Greg, in your life to this point? Most fulfilling for you? Well, probably fatherhood. I think in a lot of ways, that's probably it. But professionally, um, you know, I would just say that having the ability to meet people like you. I mean, I think the thing that's really surprising to me that I hadn't thought about when I set out to write this book is I had, as I said, I didn't really have a big grand agenda when I started is that, you know, you can make a ton of friends from just doing something creative. I don't care if you're a painter or a poet or you, you cook, whatever it is. I mean, you can make, you know, the human connections to me. I, you know, I, 
that's been amazing. I've got to meet people that I never would have dreamed I would have been able to meet. I don't even just meet famous people, but I mean people like across the world who I can, you know, like read my book and like, and I will talk to on Facebook or something like that. Or, um, you know, that ability to, to affect people in that way and to have that sort of wonderful experience of someone writing to you and say, I really liked your book and then getting to know them. And I've, I've had, I have now very close friends that I've, I've, I've made through writing this, the book that I never, never would have met. And any other, there's no other way I would have ever met them. And so that's really been the most satisfying aspect of this is just the the personal relationships and again you know obviously um it's it's fun to be able to to talk about the band i love or talk to people about um music but you know that's the, the end of the day that's really the, the thing i've made you know i've made a ton of uh, great friendships and built these great relationships with people just from them reading and and having that ability to want to reach out to me through the book you know basically they're not going to write to you randomly on facebook but they're like hey i read your book i liked your book and you get to know them that is inspiring. And, and that's one of the things I love about your story, Greg, is that you're in my backyard, literally <laughs> with your address. And I'd never met you until just a few weeks or months ago. And it's because of the like likelihood that we have something in common. And this is what we have called community, right? We find things we have mm-hmm. in common with others, go out and just shake a hand and Definitely. have a cup of coffee. And, and so let me ask you a couple more questions. I'm going to let you get on with your busy day. Um, what's the next phase of your career look like? <laughs> oh yeah we all have a uh, we have ambitions and ideas i, I tell you i i just would really like to uh, as i mentioned get that next book going and out and uh you know i i i have uh i've really really enjoyed um writing a lot more than i actually think i probably thought i would when i started being a historian i mean i think for me initially i love to teach i really enjoy teaching but i think when i first got into the the idea of being a, a teacher you know being going to grad school i thought of it as being a teacher and then sort of the ability to, to write and research sort of grew and grew and grew and grew and so you know um and again just to roll back to what we just we just talked about i mean to think for me it's it's the the satisfaction of, of people telling me i didn't know that or i had no idea about this and you know, not necessarily that all my interpretations are right or they agree with everything I write about, but basically like, I, you know, this got me really excited. I'm going to go listen to this music or I didn't really know about this, this concert that happened or this, this event that happened. Um, and perhaps people to get excited about learning about history, you know, that for me is, is super inspiring. And so, um, you know, I, I just want to be able to write another great book that people can really, you know, again, whether it's about, um, you know, something that really isn't, locked in with history, uh, music, or it is very locked in. It doesn't matter in some sort of ways. You know, it's for me, it's just the excitement of people saying that I, I learned something and I enjoyed reading about something that I had no idea about. Is there maybe a biography in your background that says the young boy from the Bronx to Oxford, <laughs> Mississippi, I mean, <laughs> a traveling boy. That honestly. would be an easier, I think that would be an easier, an easier book to write than some of the other ones. Just sit down. Well, I know the man that has all the research right up there, right up in his head. <laughs> Exactly. So, so last thing I'd like to ask for our audience here real quick, um, if you could give, and we always like to do this when we have wonderful guests like yourself has such a very robust background. It's got a lot of details in there, in your head. What one piece of advice would you give our listeners on 57 countries? What, what's one statement of advice you'd give them about influence, following your dream, leadership, legacy, whatever you would give them, what would that be? If you have a passion to do something creative, um, you know, a lot of people and may, may have a 
profession that may not lend itself to creativity. Um, if you have something that is burning inside you, just find the time to do it. I, I would say that, especially even today with like, I'll give an example, just self-publishing. Um, it is, you know, you don't need to have a press to be able to get your book out. You know, if you have a novel you've always wanted to write, there's really no reason not to write the novel. Um, you know, again, maybe, maybe you don't sell a million copies of your novel. Maybe you do sell a million copies of your novel, but you can self-publish through Amazon. It'd be available to everyone in all 57 countries of the world. People could click on that, pay their 99 cents or 5.99 and read your book. And, uh, you know, the, basically the, the barriers to entrance are, you know, have dropped in a lot of ways. Music, you know, if you want to write songs, get your music up on YouTube. Uh, you want to do poetry, you know, you know, post, you know, post your poems. I just think that for me, there were a lot of things that I could have told myself that, oh, I shouldn't do this book about Van Halen. I, you know, it's not really fit with what I do as a teacher. And this is, this is something that's going to just distract me away from my academic career, so to speak. But it ended up taking me in a whole different life direction. And as I said, it's just, it was something that I eventually got to the place where I realized I had to write this book. I just had to, um, you know, it was almost like my, my Moby Dick thing. It's like your white whale. You have to pursue this thing because uh, it's making you driven to do it. And so, and that's what I would say to people is that we, for all the problems that we have in our world today, the barriers to entry to getting your creative expression out there are very, very low now and you can do it and just, um, it, it'll, I promise that it'll, it'll benefit you in the long run if you do that. Oh man, that is great advice. Greg, it has been an honor to have you here. I could sit here and talk to you for two or three hours, my friend, but uh, I want you to know, I appreciate and respect your time. Uh, great stuff. I, I just appreciate all you've done. Would like to, if you would allow us, we're going to put in our show notes, you can contact uh, Greg on his social media. We'll have that in the show notes for you as well as how you can purchase his books. They are on Amazon as well as directly through Greg. We will get all of that there for you. And you will get, if you order them direct from Greg, you will get an autographed copy. And he was so kind to me in my autographed copy to repeat one of the lyrics of one of my favorite, favorite songs. Uh, it's kind of a little outtake. Ted and uh, Dave had a little play of uh, slogans, if you will, during the middle of Everybody Wants Some, one of the greatest songs they've written, in my opinion. It was a good one. Thank you for that, Ted. You, you've been dynamite. Listen, uh, Love to have you back on in the future. Let's get the next Anytime. book done. We'd love to have you back on. Hey, my pleasure. Anytime. It was a real, real fun time. Thank you, Jimmy, for having me on. Thank you, sir. What a great opportunity to learn from one of the most prolific writers that I have come across in a long time when it comes to uh, biographical writing, historical writing. Uh, Greg is an outstanding, outstanding author, just a, a wonderful human being. Uh, the show notes are going to contain all the information you need to order one of Greg's books. It would be an honor and a privilege. He will autograph those, as I said earlier, and uh, make those personalized for you. I encourage you to do that. So my challenge to you this week is you heard Greg say, what's the one piece of advice he would give you? My challenge this week is identify what it is that you've been postponing, what it is that you've just been putting off that is your passion for life. If it's something you're passionate about, I agree with Greg 100%. Dive in with both feet. Go out. Enjoy life on your terms. That's what we're all about here at Live a Life by Design. And if you'll join us again next week, I'm certain we'll be here to help you live a bigger, better, and bolder life. You can get a complete transcript of today's show online at livealifeby.design. If you like the show, please tell your friends and family about it. 
Also, we would be very appreciative if you would leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been a Life Master Key production. The program is copyrighted by Jimmy J. Williams and Company, all rights reserved. Our production assistant is Amy Cotton. Our intern is Brindley. Thank you.